I think what it looks like to me is not only finding other men at the church who have my interests, but who have my interests at heart and knowing that you have people you can turn to, not only in times of need, but just in everyday life. Uh, I think men are very guilty of keeping emotions close to their chest, you know, close to their vest and really don't open up as much as they should. And what you find is that when you can get around people you feel safe with, you can really unpack a lot of those things um, that you really would not dare do that with other people. I think the difference between, you know, just being a normal person on the street and being a Christian when you build these levels of trust is that I think when you're doing it from a Christian standpoint and you have the guidance of what it's like to live life in Christ, that you can actually dig a little deeper. You know, uh, my closest friends within the church, I call my church brothers. Uh, when I describe them to friends who don't know them, I call them my church brothers. And I, I think it, that means a lot to me. I hope it means as much to them. But I think, you know, when, when you're around other followers of Christ, you know, then I think there's a, you know, in my opinion, just a bit more love in how you, how you care as a friend. Find those, whether it's few or many within the church. A lot of times you start with a few, which is what small groups are all about. And that's the kind of thing that, you know, you and uh, the other pastors say is that church is in the small group, but it can expand on that. If you give it the time, you know, water it, let it grow. But I, I think, Coming to this church and not allowing yourself to become part of the community of that church means that you're doing a disservice to yourself. And I highly recommend that if you're new to the church or you're a little hesitant, start with one or two people. Try to find that beginning and then water it, let it grow. And then hopefully, I'm not saying you'll know everybody in the church and you'll feel super tight with them, but you'll find that you are building a, a community about the size you're comfortable with. But I think it's important that you have those people in your life. Well, Jay Hertzler, good uh, friend, neighbor, good dude. Um, just sharing about the last weekend's men's ministry and what it meant to him and the value of all of that. So we are talking about community this morning. I'm not sure I'm going to explain everything about the church and so forth, but we're going to make a good, good attempt at it. Um, I'm really uh, calling the church trail mix, you know, this week, calling the church trail mix. And you're like, yeah, what's that? Because we're really all just a bunch of fruit and nuts. I mean, pretty much that's what the church is, just a bunch of fruit and nuts. We might as well be trail mix. But, um, but don't take my word for it. It's not, okay, it's my opinion. But let's just go to the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, in two different um, sections, I mean, if you want to bring this up, it's a long passage, so if you brought it up on your phone, it might come in handy. Acts chapter 2 uh, in the New Testament there, if you brought it up on BibleGateway.com or whatever. Um, and uh, so, um, yeah, Acts chapter 2 is where we're going to begin, then we're going to go to Acts chapter 4. Two different occasions the church is described here. This is extremely rare in Scripture that we get such a clear and descriptive picture of what was going on in the early church. So very, very valuable. The, I'm going to pick it up right at the end of Peter's long speech, the very first inaugural sermon, speech, teaching, uh, proclamation, right there at the beginning of Acts. So I'll just give you the, his very last words here. So he says, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. 
Which, by the way, just to stop for a second, it tells you a lot about what's going on right there because part of the salvation that Peter is announcing through Jesus Christ is a deliverance from a corrupt generation. All right, so we start there. Let's go on. So those who welcomed his message, here we are describing what happened. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. The prayers, not just to prayer, but the prayers. Verse 43, all came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and the goods distributed uh, and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2, verses 40 through 47. You could unpack this for, for days. A uh, lot of stuff in here. We're going to move on, and we're going to pick it apart just a little bit here in just a moment. We move on then to chapter 4 in Acts. That was chapter 2. We skip 3. We go straight to 4. Because here's another installment picture of what the early church looked like. Very, very valuable to find these. So here it goes, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions. That's pretty astounding. But everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Better underline that, because that's the content of the message. They're giving testimony to the resurrection. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. There was a Levite, just case in point here, there was a Levite, a native of Cyprus named uh, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, And he sold a field that belonged to him and then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's what was going on in the early church. You want to call the church a bunch of fruits and nuts? Then it all started right back there in the very first church. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty fruity and that sounds pretty nutty to me. I mean, holding everything in common and selling their houses and stuff like this. Is that crazy? That's crazy. That's the church. (laughs) That's the first descriptions of the church. What we, what we can say about our brothers and sisters nearly 2,000 years ago, first and foremost, it was very attractive. It was attractive, and it was growing like crazy. They gathered for teaching and the studying of scriptures, another feature of it. They came together to, to really discern the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. And signs and wonders were the norm. Right? They ate together. They prayed together. They hung out together. They enjoyed each other. And they praised God. And the community thought they were wonderful people. People were being saved. Now, you know, the word saved, we could spend an entire seminary class, you know, 
dissecting what it means, what the first church meant by saved. But we get a couple of hints here. First off, what it isn't. Being saved is not just simply reduced down to uh, getting your private sins forgiven and avoiding hell. That is not what they meant by saved. Remember the corrupt generation part and then the resurrection. There are those two components that we can pick out of here at least. What did Peter preach? Save yourselves from this corrupt generation and don't miss the the chapter 4's description. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was a grace that followed in with the resurrection. All right? So, just track that sort of thing versus, well, we've kind of reduced down salvation to being some sort of a transaction. Okay, it's much more than that. But the most fruity and nutty feature of the first church was this. They sold their possessions, and no one was needy among them. We're not just talking about thrift store leftovers either, where they cleaned out the garage and took it to the thrift store. They sold land and gave the proceeds of the church. The financial, the financial giving was lavish, and it was sacrificial. It was all out. And if you're scooching around in your seat right now because you think I'm going to start saying, like, let's do that, then, you know, feel free to do so. Um, clearly, the number one identifying mark of the first church was sharing. That was astounding. Incredible. If someone wants to accuse the church of talking about money too much, like these days, if somebody, if they accuse us of talking about money too much, well, I think we're in pretty good company with the first fruits and nuts because they just talking about money all day long right there in the very first gatherings. And not just some sort of tithing thing. We're talking about sell out. So, remember folks, in the first century, there was no social net for anyone. There was no social security. There was no welfare. There was nothing like that going on. There was generosity. And um, people talked big, but people doing it, it was just like today. It was rare that people help people out. As a matter of fact, they were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, and it was a dog-eat-dog world, and fate, fatalism, had really come into play, and people are like, it's, you got to look out for yourself and yours, because nobody else, we don't have time for you. And it, make, make no mistake, all through the Gospels, Jesus and the others are constantly running into beggars at either the city gate or at the temple, and you're, you're running into beggars because that's all there was, is just handouts from people. And even that was pretty rare. Don't forget the, the widow with just the two small coins, and that's all she had. So it was tough back then. Okay? So let's not forget that sort of thing. Now, at the same time, the Jews at least knew better because they had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had the Psalms over and over and over replete with you need to take care of the poor. You need to take care of the disadvantaged. You should be doing something about this. The prophets judged the entire nation, I mean, and said, you're going to lose the nation if you don't start taking care of the poor. Guess what? They did not, and they lost the nation. And at this very time, in a series of oppressors, they're being oppressed by the Roman Empire. All right? That's what was going on. That's what was happening at that time. So this was really quite, quite radical that they were sharing like this 
and dispossessing and holding things in common. Very, very radical. As radical as it sounds now, it was even more so radical back then. They actually did it. They did it. Caring and sharing was countercultural at that time, just as we would think of as now. It's absolutely nutty. Just nutty as can be. Also notice then the vibrant equality of the rich and the poor being gathered together. There was the end of classism, the end of racism. We pick this up from the rest of the New Testament. It most pointedly in uh, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, here's this classic verse that all of us probably should have memorized. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 goes like this. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. Radical new society was being shaped and formed in the church. Fruity and nutty. Now, we have to understand that the foundation of this new community, the church, was grounded and founded only on one thing and one thing only, and that was the resurrection of Jesus. Imagine showing up at one of these early gatherings there in Acts, or you're at somebody's house, or you're at the synagogue, or the temple, or whatever, and you're in the outer court, and people are standing around chatting, and, and over and over, you're bumping into people who say, like, I ate with him. The resurrected Jesus? Yeah, I, I ate with him. I, I talked to him. He locked eyes with me, and I think he smiled. I, I've gone down the road with a guy, a man risen from the dead, running around bumping into well over 500 people, and maybe it says 3,000 were added. Maybe there's even more of people who saw a dead man walking around, former dead. Oh, that's crazy. No wonder they could dispossess if you thought death was dead. Do we believe death is dead? Hmm. That's the foundation. The first church was composed of witnesses of the resurrection. There is no evidence of a collaborated conspiracy, a resurrection story that was put together, some sort of fabricated lie. There's no evidence of it. People have tried in the last 200 years. Scholars have tried like crazy to try and disprove the resurrection. Even atheists, I'll just call them atheists, or agnostic scholars, the best of scholars, have have, uh, said this, and I quote, All of the disciples, all the disciples were convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. Atheist agnostic scholars will not then take the next step and say, I believe as well. But as scholars, they are certainly comfortable saying, like, the disciples were fully convinced. Those same disciples all went and died a martyr's death. You just don't go and die a martyr's death for something that you're kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge, lying about. The resurrection was real, and it changed their entire culture and society that they were shaping, this thing called the church. That was the fellowship. That was the communion of saints, all based on a resurrection. Now, here's what I think is incredible about all this. Us. <laughs> Here we are nearly 2,000 years later, and we are still gathered to worship, 
celebrate the Lord's table, remember Jesus' words there in the upper room and say, that's me, I own that. I'm gonna walk out these doors having eaten that bread and drinking that, drink out of that chalice. I'm, I'm that same people 2,000 years later. We're still gathering, worshiping Jesus, the Son of God, in the hope of the resurrection, trying to be those new people. We are his people. We still do it. We break bread, we worship, we share our time, talents, treasures, possessions. We are this unique people, a a straight-on continuation of the first church as best we can. Granted, we have no eyewitnesses of the resurrection in the room, as far as I know. Sure, 20 centuries later, we speak a different language. We're in an entirely different culture. And yeah, over 20 centuries, we have been through a lot as the church. Remember that great big huge schism? Okay, both schisms between the Latin church and the Greek church. We had a big falling out. on. Oh yeah, before that, like the first three, 400 years of the church was a huge debate and argument about whether Jesus is all man or all God. So we, there was a lot of argument going on. Oh yeah, and then another big split was the Reformation. You know, the Protestants from the Catholic church. So we got that kind of thing going on too. And we've seen the church get terribly lost. Far away from the Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4 church. We've seen this get really, really lost and fall into this easy trap of power, politics, war, heresy, violence, greed, corruption. But, you guys, far and wide, far and far wide, little churches like us for nearly 2,000 years have just been average fruits and nuts like us just living it out. Just good folk being the church of Jesus. Honest, loving, caring, sacrificing, taking care of those in our midst. Fruits and nuts like us. That's the church. And look at all the good as a result of those little communities, those little communions of saints, Look at all the good that's happened in the world. It is astounding. It is incredible. First, the church was, has been the overwhelming force against genocide, the killing off ethnic cleansings and so forth. In the last 120 years, just to compare it, in the last 120 years, 130 million people have died at the hands of, in genocide at the hands of of people trying to create a perfect secular world. And by that, I'm speaking about really communism primarily. That of Stalin and Mao and Castro and Pol Pot and even the Kims over in North Korea. On and on and on. People who thought they could purify the world and make it absolutely where everyone's the same have done the worst damage in human history. Throw in there then other things like Hitler's Nazism and that sort of thing. And need we even go and try and pick apart the Balkans and the Middle East on the death that's happened there? Christians have brought an end and stood up against genocide. Martyrs during Nazi, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, spoke out about it. On and on and on. Lambs before the slaughter. What about infanticide? One of the very, very first causes of the church, besides the poor, was infanticide, putting infants to death. 
Beginning in ancient Rome, unwanted newborns were left outside to be exposed to the elements, and they kind of concocted a little story about it being an offering up to God. They just didn't want the child. And then what did Christians do? They came and took the babies that were being left to die. They rescued children. They rescued the unwanted. And to this day, primarily Christians stand up for the cause of the unborn. No one else does. Everyone's too busy indulging themselves. Move on to the cause of women. Women's rights started with Christianity all the way up to suffrage. From Jesus redefining divorce to protecting women from trafficking, Christians have intervened. Christians brought an end to the practice of something called sute in India. 200 years ago, sute in India was the practice where if the husband died before the wife, the wife was lit on fire alive and died with her husband. One man, William Carey, a Christian missionary, came into India and put an end to the practice and said it wasn't right before God. I can't imagine how many women's lives were saved just because of one man standing up. Christianity has abolished slavery. Unquestionably, slavery has been abolished solely because of the efforts of Christians, particularly one man, and the name should roll off your lips, William Wilberforce. That one man, a member of British Parliament who dedicated his entire life and career to the abolition of slavery because, because of Christ. And he was successful. One of my favorite quotes in response when Wilberforce was just first rebel rousing in Britain against slavery came from Lord Melbourne, who said this. He said, things have come to a pretty pass when religion is allowed to invade public life. It's being quoted these days, isn't it? Lord Melbourne's not gone. But yet Christians do invade public life and speak out on the cause of others. Because of William Wilberforce, now millions of African descent Americans and Caribbeans are thankful for a Christian named William Wilberforce. I could go on about these followers of Jesus, these nobodies and so forth, talking about public education. to would be John Adams, John and Abigail. Advancements in medicine. Democracy, science, all of our modern charities were started by Christians. World Vision, International Samaritan's Purse, Food for the Hungry, Christian Children's Fund, Compassion International, Providence House, Covenant House, YMCA, Salvation Army. Right on down the line, on and on and on. Do you hear any secular history saying that they have started this sort of thing? No. That church in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4... Those people and us. That's the church. Fruits and nuts doing fruit and nutty things. That nobody in their right mind would ever do. Nobody would want to do that. Oh yeah. And by the way, Gallup Research discovered that churchgoers are more generous than secular people. Every year, religious institutions contribute $19 billion dollars for the caring of children, the elderly, education, health, food, housing, homeless, housing the homeless. The value of church volunteerism has added up to more than $6 billion a year, just people giving their time, talents, and treasures. 
The study also found that religious institutions are actually more cost-effective than, than uh, the most cost-effective charitable organizations out there. And by the way, just so you know, I always kind of throw this in every couple of years. When you're evaluating a charity, no more than 14% should go to administration of a charity. Ask the question, how much of your budget goes to administration? 14% is kind of the upper limit of an admin cost. You guys let me know if that's changed, okay? But that's what I'm going with. Well, what about us? For 25 years, Lakeland has tried its best to be like those original Christians. Just the best we can. Working on it time after time. We began way back when in the 90s with Habitat for Humanity. We didn't have anything. I don't even think we had a trailer. We, we, didn't, have, we didn't have this beautiful building. We didn't have anything. Just a bunch of fruits and nuts getting together. And on Saturdays, we go down to Habitat for Humanity. We go down to Habitat for Humanity on Saturdays. And then we added shortly thereafter the Hope Center down on the under-resourced east side. But when we moved into this place in 2005, when we bought this building, you're, by the way, sitting on an old uh, inline skate rink. Okay, just letting you know. Uh, And um, when we bought this place, something definitely shifted us, even more so like Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. What happened is when we bought this place for $4.1 million and we took on a mortgage, we began to realize we were extremely powerful with our, our finances and our generosity. We, we added on. We thought, let's just add on to the mortgage hundreds of thousands of dollars for the sake of other people. Just give it away. So we started doing that. We just give it away to the persecuted church in China. Rice and beans for feeding families, none of us know hardly, in Anapra, Mexico. Refugees, by the way, there's a bunch more coming. We're going to be amping that up again. The sick in Liberia. Some people from Lakeland are just taking off, I think, this week to go to Liberia. Rescuing abused women, on and on and on. It just says to us, we can do this. We can, we can sort of... Give, our, give things away. We can become like those people. And we've been doing it. I'll never forget meeting uh, Paula. Paula on a Saturday morning down at Habitat for Humanity. She was there all by herself. And we thought that was kind of strange. And she was super nice. And so uh, she said she came just because she thought it was the right thing to do. And she says she's not a Christian. She didn't go to church or anything like that. But she was down at Habitat for Humanity building houses because she's just a good soul. Like, Cool. So, you know, we worked together a few Saturdays, and then we all kind of became friends and started hanging out. She finally kind of came to Lakeland. We were definitely still portable back then. And, um, and I'll, I'll never forget sitting on our back deck in one chilly April after church one day, uh, and she became a Christian. And um, not only that, she became a missionary in Guatemala for many, many years. She's one of those kind of saints. Fruit meets nut, trail mix. That's the way it works. Now, I can't leave you this fine Sunday morning without giving you some deep reasons on really just the inner workings of how, how the church really became the church. And I'm going to give this to you because sometimes we need 
just some theological basis to what we're doing, and I'm going to give it to you. The Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, right? I believe in God the Father, you know, and all that sort of thing. The Apostle Creed declares in there, has a phrase that says, I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the communion of saints. So when you say the Apostles' Creed, you're saying this phrase, I believe in the communion of saints. And I'm going to give it to you in the Latin, because who doesn't need a good Latin lesson this morning, huh? I know you're just thinking, you're nodding to your neighbor like, you know what I need right now is some Latin. Oh boy. Well, here you go, folks. The communion of saints is backwards here, just like Spanish is, you know, and you think like, how come they flip everything around, all your Spanish speaking friends are saying like, how come you Amer- English people all flip everything around? Like, uh-huh. So it's same in Latin. So the communion of saints, sanctorum communio. Sanctorum communio means the communion of saints. Fruits and nuts, you name it, that's the communion of saints, right? That's what we all, when we say the creed, that's what we confess. We confess, we profess, we say, I believe in the communion of saints. But there is no communion of saints without the communion of sinners, Pectorium communio. There is no communion of saints without the communion of sinners. Like, huh? We all began as the communion of sinners. Yes, we all began as the communion of sinners. Did we not? The pectorum communio. If there was no communion of sinners, if there was no fall, if there was no sin, then there's no grace, there's no cross, there's no redemption, there's no atonement, there's no forgiveness. You have to start with being a sinner in order to join the communion of saints. You first had to join what you did, the communion of sinners. Okay. The communion of saints is only framed against the communion of sinners. And it sounds just like this, another classic verse to be memorized, right out of Galatians from Paul, Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, Galatians chapter 2, Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer who? It is no longer I who live. But who lives? But Christ who lives in me. It is no longer I who live. It, it, it's, but it's Christ who lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. I am gone. How did you get there? You moved through the pectorium communio into the sanctorum communio. You did not get here without this, the death to self. It simply had to work that way. I say this, you guys, because modern secular society has dismissed sin. It is attempting to become saints without the journey through the pectorum communio. Today, you'll hear people say, I don't believe in sin. Don't put that on me. They believe they can claim an identity without sin. They believe they can be a free self, a person all by themselves. Our culture is so in love with the notion of a self-making these days. It feels to us so real, so authentic. It is so me. And we are worshiping the self. And we love that self. And we believe we can get here to the sanctorum without redemption. In Christianity, the church says it's impossible. It's impossible. But we Christians cherish our new identity in Christ, an identity that only comes from the death of the self, but being alive to Christ. To be a Christian is a death to the love affair of worshiping the self. 
And I tell you this because it is all of these Christians in the communion of saints that have taken this journey that have changed the world so much. And in a day and age where we all want the world to change so much, the one group of people for nearly 2,000 years that have changed it the most are the ones who believe that they went through sin to the cross, to the death of themselves having died so that they may be alive in Christ and they join the communion of saints, the fellowship, and they change the world. That is how it happens. That is how it has happened. It is astounding and incredible when you look at the good that Christians have done. Only fruits and nuts need grace. Everybody else is just working on their own project. So, you can keep your moralism. You can keep your fundamentalism. You can keep your national conservatism. Conservatism. You can keep your progressive liberalism. I'm going to stick it out with a little band of fruits and nuts called the church. Because I think they just trump the whole thing. I'm going to hang out with you guys. The church, the ones who doggedly changed the world all because of Jesus. The ones who have died to themselves for the sake of somebody else. I'm going to stick it out with them. Because the other ones, I don't like the attitude. I'm trying to figure out what they're getting done. This, this is life. This, this is time-tested. This, <laughs> this is eternal. You're not just going to hang out here for a few years. You're going to be hanging out for all eternity together. So be nice. Be nice to each other. Okay? This is the church, everyone. And this is what we joined. And this is where we're at right now. Fruits, nuts, and the whole thing. You got it? This is what we're going to keep pressing around here. We're going to keep this thing going as much as we can, as long as all of us make this journey from sinner to saint. As the old bumper sticker says, every sinner has a future, and every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future, and every saint has a past. And that's who we are. Amen.